Shot Esh, a Darren Unitia. Hello, my name is Darren. I am a sustainability scholar and environmentalist. Hola, me llamo Jimena. Hello, my name is Jimena, and I am a natural resource technician, the creator of Science Saves the World, and an environmental activist. So, talk climate change to me. Did you know that the planet's average surface temperature has risen about 1.62 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about 0.9 degrees Celsius since the late 19th century? That's like wild. So today we're going to be uh, discussing colonialism, worldviews, and climate change. Um, so Jimena, what do you what what are your opinions and views on like how colonization and like worldviews and how that has affected climate change the way that we're experiencing it now? I think a good part of it boils down to a person's personal beliefs and morals. So religion definitely has a lot to play with it because the way that we view ourselves in comparison to the world around us um, says a lot about how we treat the environment. I know, I completely agree. And I, I think um, since like colonization happened in the name of religion, I think the way that things happened back then are definitely transcending into the things that are happening now. But a lot of people don't really want to face that fact because they try to just like sweep climate, uh, not climate change. Well, some people try to do that too, but they try to like um, excuse colonization and just kind of forget about it because, you know, it happened in the past and everything. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it was hand in hand with religion. And I think the way that people view themselves is that they view themselves as superior than all other beings on the planet, which is, um, I believe, mistake number one, because we are part of the planet. We are part of the environment. We are not apart from it. And we shouldn't hold ourselves um, to uh, we, we shouldn't hold ourselves on a, this pedestal when other animals are, are currently facing extinction all because of our fault. Exactly. That's what I refer to as the human human superiority complex, but the actual term for it is like anthropocentric, but you know, but so today we're actually going to be featuring um, Charlie Scott. They are a PhD student at the University of Denver um, and a really, really good friend of mine. So welcome, Charlie. Hi everyone, my name is Charlie Amaya Scott. I am born from the Zuni Water Edge clan. I am the I am of the honeycomb rock of the Cliff Dwellers clan my maternal grandparents of the salt people clan and my paternal grandparents are of the hopi sun clan i was born and raised in the central part of the navajo nation in a small town called chinley arizona i currently live in del Murto. um by this traditional introduction i'm showing you who i am who my relatives are and also who i'm representing in addition my english pronouns are they them I also identify as non-binary, yet in my community, I identify as a specific social positionality called Nagle, which in English roughly translates to one who constantly changes or one who transforms. Welcome, we're glad to have you. Um, so before we start, I kind of want to just define like what climate change is because like, I feel like everybody, they know of the term and they kind of know what's going on, but nobody really understands like the actual definition of it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like just for the sake of, you know, having everyone on the same page, um, climate change occurs when there are changes in the Earth's climate system, which leads to differences in weather patterns that stick around for a while. Um, so those changes bring like frequent and very intense droughts, storms, rising sea levels, melting glaciers, um, increasing ocean temperatures that affects both human and non-human lives. So I'm sure everybody knows that, but like just to kind of, you know, get everybody on the same page. Um, so today we're gonna to be talking about colonialism, worldviews and climate change. Um, so like, I guess to kick, off, kick everything off, like how do you think colonization affected climate change or influenced it, I should say? Oh, 
Wow, that's such a big question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to try and break it down. Um, I'm not sure if y'all cover this, but the def- so I'm going to like start with the definition of settler colonialism. Um, and this is usually a sort of like amalgamation of like, literally all the theoretical, t- theoretical texts I have read. Um, some of the scholars that have written about this and continue to write this are like Brian McKinley Jones Brayboy, who is Lumbee, um, Eve Tuck, who is uh, First Nations. Unfortunately, I cannot pronounce the community that she descends from. Um, Angie Morrill, Melly Arvin, um, all these like phenomenal people. And there's like so many other scholars as well. Um, but personally, Southern colonialism is mainly concerned with the elimination of an indigenous presence both people and land. Um, one particular like, theoretical definition is that it's a persistent social and political formation in which newcomers, colonizers, settlers come to a place, claim it as their own, and do whatever it takes to disappear the indigenous peoples that are there. And so there's this like intentional construction of a home from a foreign presence that does not have a relationship with the space, with the land, with the sort of like, if you were to use Latin, flora and fauna, with the animals and plants in the area. And so how does settler colonialism create or drive climate change? Largely has to do with that intention of removal and elimination of indigenous presence. I think a lot of ways settler colonialism was a sort of it's a constant disruptor and what you say like climate change, like there's a constant intention of changing weather patterns, changing the environment, changing the sort of like interaction between human and non-humanoid species in addition to plants, all that wonderful stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And particularly with that, you also get into this concept of land of like what it is, what it means um, and people's relationship to it particularly with indigenous peoples, like our culture and livelihood are tied to lands. They're tied to sort of like intimate relationship that's been there since time memorial. Like if you go to, if you listen to any of the creation stories of any indigenous community, there's always that constant spark of relationship between the cosmos and oneself. Whereas like you sort of get the same thing with colonizers, with their own sense of creation, but as we both know, with the way they conceptualize creation, it sort of differs depending if you take a more quote unquote Western scientific route or a more major Christian religion point of view. Um, but particularly with colonizers within what's currently known as the United States, because of that elimination of indigenous presence, land became sort of like a commodity. It is sort of like something that's to be exploited, something to be used, something to acquire wealth and capital. Um, and I think a really great example of this, so as, so as I was introduced, I'm um, a sort of like PhD student in higher education. And so I tend to focus on colleges and universities. And I think a lot of ways colleges and universities are prime replication of like what solar colonialism manifests as, particularly because colleges and universities are are intentionally sort of like this active transmission, preservation, and accumulation of knowledge, democracy, wealth, that sort of thing. But universities are built on stolen land. And so in a lot of ways, land becomes a sort of mechanism of financing their existence, enabling their growth um, and and their establishment. So there's like this long history of land being used as a resource, being used to accumulate wealth and being used to just like remove an indigenous person, which is so fascinating if you really think about it, like how land is being used in that sort of way. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Um, one of the things that when you talked about, like, uh, the way that they were, colonizers came and, like, were changing the land and everything, mm-hmm. um, there was actually a report, uh, where was a study done by Alexander Coach, Chris Brierley, Mark Maslin, and Simon Lewis, um, which is titled Earth System 
Earth System Impacts of the European Arrival and Great Dung in the Americas, which was through University College uh, London. Um, and they were kind of um, assessing the way that the climate changed after contact when they started to you know, slaughter our people and everything. Um, and essentially what happened is since they, and I think this is a way for like Europeans to kind of make colonization, I guess romanticize it in a way and make it not seem as bad as it actually is. Um, because they were talking about how since our populations dwindled, um, a lot of the natural plants in the environments kind of grew and it created this like cooling effect where the planet, the average temperature um, actually in the 1500s and 1600s dropped about 32 degrees, which is about 0.15 degrees Celsius, um, which they, in, in their article, they kind of discuss it as a way where that was like a good thing. But then if you look at what happened afterwards is Europeans, um, they, when they started degrading the land to like use all the natural resources as they saw fit, um, it's the reverse started happening. And that's what, hap that's what caused the great acceleration, which I'm sure Himana can discuss about in a little bit. Um, but I think a lot of people don't realize that climate change is rooted in colonization because of the fact that they came and like, I guess they, they what am I trying to say? They, like tr they took large amounts of land across the globe and used it in a way that has caused all of the issues that we're kind of facing with now, you know what I mean? Because they started extracting a lot of fossil fuels, which they started burning in the Industrial Revolution and up until present day, which are causing greenhouse gases to rise in the atmosphere and all that fun stuff. Yeah, and I think part of the reason that all of this has accelerated is because of faith reasons. So like how you're talking about um, a faith where you take you care about the land you care you move when the crop seasons are different or mm -hmm. like you how do i say this you move according to the land and in like faiths like christianity and just background before i start talking about this i did grow up roman catholic and i went to a catholic university where i took a lot of courses on catholicism and the history of theology and stuff and so like that's i'm not practicing catholic anymore because i've learned so much <laughs> like i know way too much to be okay with things that happen. <laughs> you were going to be fine i was baptized as mormon i get you thinking about the way that all of this started was first off people weren't even allowed to read the bible like word for word for the longest time everything was word of mouth and everything was translated from the spiritual leaders to the people so nobody actually read the bible for the first couple hundred years and so part of that is that people could just spin whatever narrative they wanted to about god and then a couple hundred years later people were looking at it through different hermeneutics so Imagine here now in 2019 reading the Bible and thinking that those words were written for somebody in 2019. They were not. They were written for people. I don't know when the Bible was written, but like something BC, some like whatever question mark BC is yep. when it was written. So it was written for people of that time. And when people look back and they think, oh, we can degrade the land, we can have slaves, this and that, whatever claims of the Bible, the Bible was not written for people in 2019. <laughs> The Bible was written according to the beliefs and the lifestyle of the people that lived at that time. And so when we read the Bible, we should be thinking, what, what would this have meant for the people at the time? And then translating it. It's the, the hermeneutics of how you look at things. And so I think a lot of where misinterpretation comes in hand is that people believe, well, like, take Genesis, for example, the creation of the universe, God gave us the Garden of Eden, whatever. People believe that it was a gift so we can do whatever we want with it, as opposed to God giving us one of his creations to take care of. Like there's a difference between like having a present and just doing whatever you want with it and having something that's valuable, God's creation, and being the stewards of the land and taking care of it, which I believe, well, People can believe different things, but I believe that that's the way it was intended, that we were supposed to be stewards and shepherds of the land, take care of it, it be our responsibility, but the way that people have twisted things and misinterpreted the Bible, 
is that they just believe that we're greater than all the other beings on the environment and in the planet. And that is how they justify <laughs> all of these, like all the deforestation, mountaintop removal, because this is truly a gift from God, if you choose to believe that faith. But God gave us this gift. And because he gave it to us, we can do whatever we want with it. We can degrade it. We can whatever. It was our gift to begin with, instead of us tending to the land. Like we should be the ones that are here to protect God's gift rather than the other way around. And I think that's how things get misinterpreted. <laughs> exactly. And then just to like build up, build on that, I think since um, in the, it was in uh, 1823 during the, it was the first Supreme Supreme Court case that uh, involved like they used the term Indians, but natives. Um, it was Johnson versus, I think it's Emintosh, uh, where Chief Justice Marshall, basically he, um, he, I, what is what what is the word? He invented the Christian doctrine of discovery. So that basically, like, is what allowed Europeans, Christian people, to come over and just literally do whatever they want because of what you just said. Like God gave them the land. You know what I mean? And I think mm-hmm. that I I think that that's where um, the human human sorry about that <laughs> human superiority complex was like began um, because I think that's when people started to view like the land and non-human kin as commodities instead of something that we should be taking care of. And that's why they kind of just started using it as they saw fit. You know what I mean? It's really, yeah. Yeah, and I would argue, I think it, would, it probably would start earlier, especially if we think about like, <laughs> particularly we were to think of the United Kingdom as a case study, particularly Great Britain, and sort of like just how they polluted their own waters where they had like no fresh water to drink how the sort of like virus and disease that just came about because of just like the lack of hygiene particularly think of like how the black plague came about like i like to think well not think i would argue that that conception of commodity was definitely before the doctrine discovery was invoked because i find that like it's always been there. Like there's always this performance of indigeneity that I find that colonizers try to do that. I think there's that sense of like trying to grasp onto something that they've sort of just like lost over the years, a sort of like foundation stability that I don't think they could ever acquire in the next like before, you know, climate change like takes us all out and returns us back to the earth. (laughs) I, I I guess yeah that actually makes a lot of sense. I I think I would that's I think my mind was there, but I, I completely skip that because I completely forget. Whenever I have these conversations, I immediately think of like after contact here and not how they were before they came over here. You know what I mean? That's probably yeah. like the first time it was documented, but like throughout history, like psychologically, I'm sure it's been going on. Maybe in cultures that we don't even know about. I know there's a lot of cultures I don't know about. so um i guess like one of the other things that i think um which is kind of building off of this i think what charlie said a little earlier um is so colonizers they are the ones that kind of they're the ones that started damming rivers and all these different things which i know that there was i can't remember the pacific dam but one of them is in the pacific northwest affecting i think it's a coast solid tribes tribes I'm not sure uh, which dam it is, but it's affecting like salmon populations. Um, Mm, Yes. Because that's like a really big thing. Um, I know like OXDX clothing has like a bunch of stickers for like let the salmon run and stuff. Um, But that's like a really good example of them kind of just doing what they want. And they don't like, they completely disregard the effects that it's going to have on local populations, indigenous populations, what it's going to have on non-human species and how that's going to affect us. Um, It's kind of, it's the, um what am I trying to say kind of okay so like with plastics sorry I'm like all over the place um so like so like with plastics for example um they were born plastic was born because of the fact that they were trying to come up with like a cheap way to I think it was a cheap way to package everything and that was kind of around the time when they started to use fossil fuels um and that's why majority I don't know there's some plastics that don't contain it but all plastics are bad um but majority of them contain fossil fuels and the way that we were disposing of them before was the same way, just completely disregarding how the effects that they're going to have on the environment. 
And fast forward to present day, and that's how come we have like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which there's actually some people that don't believe in that, surprisingly, because they can't see it with their own eyes, but I'm like, it's actually there. Um, but like uh, colonization is what has led to the, the sixth ma mass extinction, which is what we're currently experiencing, which we kind of touched on in the previous episode. Um, and most people are completely unaware of that, or they are aware of it, but they don't really care because of the way that we view non-human kin, because we view them as like less than, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think starting off, like you literally went from like the seed to the whole entire flower. Like you didn't hear the solution to pollution is dilution, duh. That, that's why all of this is happening because that was the solution that they came up with at the time. Like that, <laughs> that was literally the motto. <laughs> Not really, though. <laughs> but and it's then, so fascinating, though, because in all of, like, all of this, you also see, like, an intimate connection to capitalism as well. This sort of, like, desire to be as efficient as possible, but also exploiting as much labor as well. So it's just... <laughs> I always find those connections between, like, solid colonialism and capitalism as, like, just so, like, obvious. But I think for a lot of folks, it's like, how do you, like, weave through those? No, exactly. See, so I never, they were never obvious to me until I actually started following you on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> really, really funny. I've learned so much on Twitter and like, I love it. But I guess there's people actually learning stuff from me because they DM me and I'm just like, oh, oh thank you. Like, I didn't really know. I was gonna yeah, you post all of those threads. Right? Like, to, to build off, uh, like, um, I just had a brain fart. Capitalism. There you go. I'm so sorry. I'm so tired. So um, the, um, an alternative to, cap to capitalism, um, which is, it's socialism, but it's called eco-socialism, which I think a lot of people are really unaware of. Um, so it's basically like traditional socialism, um, but it basically, they are guided by, I'm trying to think if I remember correctly, um, it was actually built off of indigenous people's principles, which is like annoying. I'm sorry? Is it the seven generations? Uh, no, that's like a, that's something different. But like eco-socialism, they, they utilize like traditional knowledge from indigenous peoples to kind of build this idea, which is very problematic in itself because of the fact that um, colonizers tend to exploit our, uh, our traditional knowledge for their gain, you know what I mean? And that's how this was kind of birthed. But I think a lot of um, people who are pro-eco-socialism, they don't really talk about how it was built from indigenous um, perspectives. Um, and it's basically uh, the idea that we want to build a society that is like harmonious with nature, but with social socialistic principles, you know? And I think like the way that that was birthed has a lot to do with colonization because of the fact that they're exploiting our knowledge, which then goes back to colonization being what influenced climate change. And it's like just one big <laughs> issue everything is a cycle <laughs> i know and it's like and I, I feel like people think that like you can make one little change and it'll fix everything but it's like you have to make changes everywhere in order to make like a massive change you know what i mean like people need to be educated on how colonization affected this they need to understand um environmental racism environmental justice like all these different issues that are part of the bigger picture that is climate change yeah, like start with the root of the issue instead of just trying to put a band-aid on the symptoms of climate change. Because exactly. yeah, like seas are rising. You can build a, you can build however many seawalls you want, but maybe we should be tackling the reason are rising. Like, and they're still gonna rise too. That wall's not gonna protect you. <laughs> I know, right? And like, oh my god. And one of the things that. It, it goes, I think, I think it has to do with like the settler colonialism is the way that they, they, they treat land and we, we, no, they um, have this like, they don't have a connection to the land in which that they occupy. So they just have this like, like, yeah, we can move anywhere, which, you know, it's true, but they don't really have a connection to where they were born, where they were from. Um, and you can kind of see that in the way that they build their homes. Um, a really good example is like Nor NorCal, where there's a lot of um, affluent people who have homes on the cliff sides. And so the oceans are eroding the cliff away, which is a natural process. And there's actual houses that are kind of like sticking off of the cliff because they just built it there without regards to like what, what, what would happen with just natural processes, you know? And as sea level rise, that's just gonna get worse. And I think like, I think a lot of 
uh, colonial philosophies, like they can really, um, they can build off of like the indigenous perspectives of like our connection to land. Cause like, obviously like I grew up disconnected. I didn't even really fully understand connection to land and what that meant for me and what that meant for like society as a whole. But thanks to people like Charlie and other friends of mine, I've been able to really learn what that means and how that is like affecting the way that we are changing the planet, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I had a comment on like the stuff that you're talking about yeah. the building homes on the cliff side. Did you know that in South Carolina, they actually made it illegal for people who were building homes on the coast to take into account climate change and sea level rise so like none of those new buildings are up to standards with any of the projections because they their thought was like well if maybe if we ignore it it just won't it just won't affect us <laughs> i think they did something in florida it made it a law it is a law they're so dumb like i i honestly like when those people's houses are like underwater, I'm gonna have no sympathy. The only sympathy that I'm gonna have is for the animals that are getting affected by those houses. But those people are gonna be like, sorry, you denied climate change and it's happening, so that's your fault, you know? <laughs> At some point, like, you just need to be slapped in the face. Like, if, if things happen to their homes, that's the slap in the face that they needed to maybe like rethink a couple priorities that, and beliefs that they had. Where's the lie? <laughs> But um, so back to like uh, connection to land, I know Charlie does a lot of work um, relating to this. So I, w- I want to get your input on what, <laughs> you, but, like your input on everything and like how uh, our connection to land has influenced, I guess, small changes that have led to climate change or what, like what your views on it are. Like indigenous people's relationship to land or colonizers' relation to land? Um, I guess you can both. Like a both. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I felt like I went over to colonize relation to land, which is that of like exploitation. Oh yes. And that like constant exploitation, like you can't extract anything from an empty like can. Like the more you extract it, you're gonna get to the bottom and then like you're left with repercussions and consequences. Um I think particularly with relation to land for indigenous peoples, it's it's so I've been thinking this in more of like a heavy theoretical sense, particularly learning from like creation stories, the con- the theoretical term of storytelling, reading a lot of like the real text, like some folks from like um, Vine Deloria Jr., who wrote God is Red in 2003. I think that book has been very helpful in terms of like understanding these sort of like cultural, religious aspects of relationship to land that Indigenous peoples have, um, particularly because like with that book in particular context is important time and place are important but time and place are sort of time in particular sort of like a cyclical model like things can be repeated things can be maintained but there's a constant there that exists um and that constant is the space and that space is is literally always there um for example like where rituals and ceremonies are particular like very like powerful sacred spaces in particular have a sort of lot of like memory knowledge and connection and i think the way that i've been sort of understand that has been through um a wonderful playwright director and actor um named monique mohika who is kuna and rapahanik she's this amazing like elderly native woman who literally just travels across all of like what we currently know as the americas like I don't know where she's at right now, but from what I understood, she's in Ecuador. But um, in like this book called in Within Plain Sight, Inscripted Earth and Invisible Realities, she describes the land as like an archive. And the way that I've been sort of like taking that is that the land is a sort of like sentient archive, that there's this relationship between land and memory, particularly with indigenous people's memories and stories, that become a sort of like living entity that has like a power and sort of like ongoing existence, basically their own. And so from this archive, a lot of indigenous peoples can sort of like have the capability to remember like their sort of like positionality within the cosmos, their relationship to the cosmos, their understanding of the cosmos, like 
land is very tied to identity, cultural identity, traditions, and knowledge that are very unique to indigenous peoples. Like, I think, for example, every time I visit, um, and I actually went hiking with um, Darren in this place, Candice National Monument. So beautiful. It was, it's a wonderful place. Um, so, yes. But I always hike the White House Trail. And every time I walk through it, I always remember like different times that I've been through it, like as a child, as a teenager, and now as an adult. There's always this constant reminder of that presence there. But every time I walk it, I always get in a very reflective space and I start thinking, I start imagining, um, particularly I start imagining the future and what it could be and what it should be, which in a lot of ways is very tied to how like indigenous people's relationship to land because there's this also, there's that again, that cyclical nature of time. So there's this constant reflection of the past, this constant presence of the present. And then there's that constant imagination of the future that I think is very unique to us. Um, especially when it's tied to land, which becomes a very, again, powerful, sentient archive of reflection. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, to build off of that, I think, um, me- I mean, many Indigenous groups, including our own, um, are we're very cautious about the way that we approach development and different things of that nature because of the fact that it's been engraved in our culture to, like, preserve it, not only just for us, but for future generations. And I think... Um, the settler colonial governments that we have now and what is known as um, the Americas presently, um, they, I think that it's like a recent thing that they've started to really care about. They never really cared to preserve the environment or really have a, a balance, you know what I, what I mean? Like there, there needs to be a balance between like what we're doing and how we're taking care of the nature and um, mm-hmm. or the environment. And like, to what extent are we willing to extract resources, but not leave enough for future generations, you know, like how, why, like, I think I'm, I think I'm making my point. I, this is like, I'm so passionate about this topic and issues like this that I tend to like jump from like issue to issue to issue because like I want to talk about everything, but you can only talk about so much per topic, you know what I mean? Because it's, there's so much going on. But what I think you're highlighting is the sort of like interconnectedness of all these issues that are all tied together of both like climate change, capitalism, um, environmental justice, indigenous people's rights, human rights, like all these things are interconnected. And I think that tells you a lot about like what indigenous peoples do and the issues. Like I always find it fascinating. Like every time I like have a conversation with an indigenous person, like we always move from different topics because like we have to know so much in order to sort of like navigate this world, but also to like defend our own livelihoods and rights. So, like, you are completely fine with jumping from place to place. It just shows that, like, you have you have to know all these things and you care about a lot of things. Exactly. And it's good because we know that it's not one-sided. It's not like, oh, you read somewhere on an article that sea turtles are dying because of plastic straws. Like, no, you, you know a wide range of things and you know the causes of the issues. <laughs> I try. I, 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 it's like, you know... Um, and I, I really do have to thank Twitter for a lot of this stuff because I, I mean, I knew a lot of the environmental science portions of it and like the environmental issues, but I, I never, prior to maybe last year, I couldn't really tie it together with indigenous issues. But I think what really awoke me and I'm sure many people across the nation um, was what happened between energy transfer partners and Standing Rock. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like that is what really awoke many non-Native Americans as to what exactly occurs to native peoples in the US presently. Cause I think a lot of people have this idea that like everything happened to us in the past. And like, now we're like living good with the whole, like everyone has an idea that we get a big check from the government. Like I wish I got a check from the government because I would not be as broke as I am right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, and I think like that kind of goes, building off of Standing Rock, I think that that was a really, big movement as far as or it was a big movement movement for our people but it was a really big um influence on non-native people because of the way that they saw that we were defending a water source and most of them are so disconnected from like their food sources and their water sources like i've talked to people here in arizona like my friends and they'd like they didn't know where our water came from but if you drive from phoenix to los angeles you can see 
the Central Arizona Project Canal that brings in like millions of gallons of water from Lake Mead. And that's what a lot of the canals are in like Scottsdale and like all these little cities that people run by. And people assume that these are just like, um, they're just like natural occurring rivers and different things like that. And I'm like, no, they're, they're hauling in water from another area. Um, and like, yeah, that is maintained to a certain extent. But if you look at the way that they treat that compared to water sources that are near um, Native nations, like the, I can't remember the name of the river, but it was the one that the, the mine spilled. Oh, into, yeah. The one in Navajo Nation, yes. King's Gold Mine. Yes, that one. Oh, San Juan? I, I think, it was it the San Juan? I think it was the San Juan River. I think, I'm pretty sure that. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was the San Juan River. Um, but, like, so if you look at the way that that was handled, that wasn't really a big deal. Um, and it was it, the same thing goes for Standing Rock with them building a pipeline through there. Like, it wasn't a big deal because it was affecting Native peoples. But if they were to, if that were to affect the Central Arizona Project, it would be, like, the biggest problem ever. You know what I mean? Because it's affecting, I mean, it would be affecting Native people here too, but Phoenix has such a high population of, non-native people and especially colonizers that like of course it would be a big deal you know what i mean i do like and and i don't know if you mentioned this but also i don't know if y'all noticed but energy transfers also rerouted the pipeline so that it would not affect the water source of a predominantly white community near there yes was, <laughs> was, it, was it bismarck yes i think it was bismarck yeah i, I read about that somewhere um because i actually i remember that because I, I had a really big march in San Antonio, like in downtown, when that was occurring specifically against that. And um, I think I had that written on a poster or something. But I think a lot of people didn't even realize about like the Treaty of Fort Laramie and how that land was technically not even the US. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's so many complexities that come with like degradation of the land and the way that we treat our natural resources and specifically what we define as a natural resource. Because um and actually one of my one of my courses it was geography of natural resources they um defined humanity as a natural resource as what we call human capital and i was like how how can you and they defined um non-human kin which are animals as a natural resource because we can we can use them as we see fit but i'm like that's not you can't like if you look at i think it was yellowstone when they when they released um the wolves like when they reintroduced wolves into Yellowstone, everything was kind of restored. Like there was like a balance of everything versus before um, humans were having to manually do these things because of that exact reason. And that's another um, influence on climate change because of the way that if we kill off certain species, other species are gonna go unchecked, which is really gonna change the way ecosystems function. Am I making sense? Yeah. I'm following. (laughs) I'm following. I I just thought you were going somewhere like more. (laughs) No, I was like, I was waiting for somebody to build off because I was like, I think. No, because like a lot of, well, a lot of the highlights is sort of like reciprocity and synchronicity, synchronicity, something, that word with an S and the sync. English is not (laughs) language. but again, it goes back to the sort of like interconnectedness that's woven both within issues, but also within like the eco, like the ecology. Like a lot of like theories and everything, particularly because I so I'm studying sort of like organizational theory and sort of like pretty much like how a campus environment affects and impacts a student's success or staff success or faculty success or a university's own success, and a lot of those theories come from this is the ecological side, basically what you study, Darren. (laughs) (laughs) Environmental science, is that it? (laughs) Yeah. I'm, so I'm sustainability and urban planning, but I'm focusing on environmental planning. So I've taken a lot of environmental science courses and different things of that nature. Um, And it's actually kind of really funny the way that I get involved in that. Cause I was, I was just focusing on sustainability, but as I was going through my coursework, I realized, you know, a lot of these issues are stemming from urban areas and the way that we develop urban areas, which is why I decided to tack, um, tack on urban planning as like a, cause now I'm interdisciplinary so I can kind of use both. Um, and I met with my new mentor, her name is Dr. Michelle Hale. She's Dine and Ojibwa. Um, and she's like, su- she's super, super sweet. Um, and I mean, I was already wanting to get involved with like um, 
environmental land use and urban planning within like indigenous communities. And she has really pushed me to go towards that route, which I didn't even realize was like a thing. And I was talking to another mm -hmm. faculty member about it who were, I, my, so my specific interest is cultural based land use planning. And when I mentioned that to the other professor who was non-native, he said that that wasn't a thing. And there was no way to do that because you can't have cultural based land use planning. And I was like, okay, no, but you can. And he was like, you can't base it on culture. I was like, well, you can base it on cultural beliefs on how you use the land. It's like, that's, that's what I'm trying to get at. And he didn't understand that, which I think is a really, really, it really complements what we're talking about because the fact that he couldn't understand that one little topic and he's like a higher, higher education, like professor um, who's influencing like, sure, thousands of students on that topic. Um, that just makes people think that, it, I, it reinforces the idea that we can use the land however we see fit because of the fact that they're not really decolonizing the way that they are thinking in regards to the way that we use land, you know? Important question though, what do you wanna be when you grow up? What do I wanna be when I grow up? Ooh, that's interesting. And I, you know, I've never sat and thought about that. I'm just like, <laughs> I'm gonna do this and we'll see what happens. Um, We're going into debt for something. Yeah. Okay. You're right, you're right. Um, okay, so I you think- have about 20 years to figure it out, you know, before like, you know, <laughs> I'm gonna go into more debt and buy a sailboat and just like live on a boat and go across the ocean until we die, you know, live, live my best life. <laughs> no, but okay, so I think- <laughs> <laughs> Um No, but I, I think I really, I wanna go into, environmental land use planning, but specifically for indigenous communities. Um, and one of the things that really inspired me was Standing Rock and then also the uh, TMT, is it T the TMT telescope in on the Big Island mm -hmm. of Hawaii um, and how they're handling that. Um, and that's something that I, I really, I really wanna go into because I think that a lot of planning agencies, whether they are part of the private sector or the public sector, they don't take into account how this is gonna affect indigenous people or take into account how whatever land they're trying to use is culturally significant to indigenous groups. I mean, all land is sacred, but specifically there's certain areas that are more sacred and at least I might be saying this wrong and I'm sorry if I offend anybody, but I think that, that that's really what I wanna do because we need to include indigenous peoples and our voices when, we are, when you are building something. And I think a really good example of the way that that, that, or the TMT telescope is a really good example of how that was not handled properly. Um, and then for, for, for the context of the mainland, if you look at the Phoenix area, they're expanding our Loop 202 freeway, which is cutting through the Gila River reservation, which they opposed and they're still doing it. Um, and that, that, that is another, um, that, that specific freeway is also gonna add to climate change, specifically uh, greenhouse gases, especially in the Phoenix area, because they're just expanding freeways and building more freeways, which are just gonna add more cars, which are then going to increase greenhouse gas emissions, you know? But tying back to what I wanna do when I grow up, yeah, that's basically, you know, in, uh, environmental planning and urban planning, and I wanna really um, incorporate environmental science into it and sustainability practices, but specifically decolonizing the way that we do those things. I actually have a professor when I was in the School of Engineering, she um, she said one of her first jobs was she was working somewhere in LA and they were actually planning on building a, um, a dump site. And so they took like a whole bunch of data of how many households there are, how much trash is produced, and they like narrowed it down to a specific spot in the city that through all of their data they found was the perfect spot because it was like short um short um what is it called when short routes for the drivers and stuff and so it was like the perfect spot basically and they were planning to build it they like set out did all the planning and stuff and then and this was something that they completely overlooked in the process of them doing this they realized that the spot that they chose actually landed on top of a very low income area and so in order to build that, they would have had to displace all of those people and take away their housing and stuff. 
just to build that. And so sometimes even if you try to do things as sustainably as possible, I think that there always has to be somebody in the room like you who is like th- like telling people, hey, maybe you should think about the little people and not just displace them because you think this is the perfect spot for everyone. Because like when you're looking, like taking in all your data, you have to think about all of the factors. You can't just go purely off of data. There's low income people that live in that area. And so eventually they like did enough protests that they ended up scrapping the project. But it's kind of things like that where people just don't think about the little guys. They just like look over them. Exactly. And I, I think um, the, what we're talking about now is we're kind of just trying to infiltrate the system, I guess you can say. Um, and I think that's really important because like uh, through decolonizing the way that we approach things, we can decolonize those systems that are causing all these issues which stem from colonization, in, in my opinion. But maybe, maybe some <laughs> yeah, opinions. Please, no, please, please correct me. If no, I'm wrong. well, personally, no. And this is coming from someone who works in universities and colleges and who has sort of like conceptualized the aspect of decolonization. So the way I've sort of understand decolonization is that it's literally, if we go to Eve Tuck and K. Wayne Yang's decolonization is not a metaphor. Decolonization is the return of indigenous land and life. And but if we were to go to, and I'm gonna like ruin her name because I can never pronounce it. And I've actually never heard it to in person, but Linda Tihue Smith, who wrote Decolonizing Methodologies, she writes that decolonization is not a total rejection of all Western theory and knowledge. Rather, it's concerned with the centering of indigenous ways of being, indigenous ways of knowledges, knowing. And so both of those things can exist in these type of institutions, but that's a process of indigenizing rather than decolonizing. And I think there's a key difference between those two because decolonizing is essentially the return of land. And if a university or institutions are not gonna give the land back to indigenous peoples, then it's literally just a miscommunication and a continuation of a settler colonial state, which I find to be very frustrating in some ways, particularly because like, for example, like if we were to talk about, because you mentioned um, what's happening on the big island in the kingdom of Hawaii with Mauna Kea at the telescope, because, so that, if you didn't know, that is, that was, um, that were, there's a contract between f- several different universities. So like the University of California system, um, China, Russia, and the University of Hawaii. And a lot of those particularly with the University of California system and the University of Hawaii, they have these things called land acknowledgements and land acknowledgements is like a formal practice of acknowledging that you're on occupied stolen land and you sort of like talk about your relationship to land. It's a sort of like performative way of just saying like, oh, look here, indigenous peoples, we have them here, um, but we're not going to like do anything with them, (laughs) that sort of thing. Um, but these institutions are trying to construct a telescope because they're primarily concerned with land accumulation and their own expansion as universities, especially as Research One universities. And Research One universities are the top universities in the Carnegie classification, um, which pretty much like tiers how like what university does in terms of research level. Um, and University of Hawaii at Manoa, I think, and University of California and Los Angeles are both research one universities. And so they're concerned with accumulating their ability to conduct research, particularly within astronomy, climate change, those sort of things, because Monarchy is considered a quote unquote prime site for those type of things and those type of studies. And so even if you do, even if you are the person in the room telling like this is bad it's an unfortunate reality that you're still recycling and reifying Southern colonialism. And that's something that I'm constantly aware of too, especially when I give recommendations um, to university officials on like what they should do and how to do it. Because, but I also have to acknowledge that I'm primarily concerned with making sure that every student is successful 
um, particularly Native indigenous students, and like what they do with this and how they disrupt the system is what I'm trying to like get them to. So in a lot of ways, it's like, what are my intentions with this space and how are those related to my own sense of being in a relationship to land and my own culture? Okay. That was like a long theoretical weaving. I hope <laughs> that made, was accessible. <laughs> no, that, that really, it, it, I, I knew a lot of those things based on, of course, because if I follow you on a lot of things, I'm very grateful for that. I, so going back to what I said, I actually should correct myself. I meant to say indigenizing, not decolonizing, but I tend to get the two mixed up, but that's also in part because I, I'm still learning about these things and I'm still in the process of decolonizing my mind and the way that I do things. And so I guess to build off what I was saying prior is I want to indigenize the way that we do things, but I want to increase um, what's known as public participation planning. So what it is, is you, it's a bottom-up approach. You start with the community that you're working with and you go from there. So whatever whatever you're planning out, whether it's um, a site for commercial businesses, housing, transportation, like you start with the community, community's um, input first and then you go from there. So all decisions are made by community members and not by like higher officials, if that makes any sense. Um, so that's, that's specifically what I want to do, but um, I want to do it with, indigenous communities, um, and when I say indigenous communities, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to group us all together. Uh, all I'm doing is I'm just trying to be inclusive, inclusive of Hawaiians in the kingdom of Hawaii and those um, indigenous peoples who aren't Native American or First Nations in Canada, because I think we tend to do that a lot and a lot of focus tends to be on us. And so I want to try to be more inclusive, but I've had people on Twitter get upset because they think that I'm trying to group us all together and I'm really not. So I just wanted to clarify that. Um, but also because within reservations and reserves in Canada, we have sovereignty versus some, some indigenous groups don't have that. Um, and I'm not saying that's like necessarily luxurious for us because at the end of the day, we don't have the land that is ours, um, mm -hmm. but it's, for lack of a better way to explain it, it's a little easier to, how should I say this, to, de to develop, I guess, um, in regards to like transportation and housing and different things of that nature. Mm -hmm. But it's also kind of bad because if you look at the, the Navajo Nation, for example, um, our zoning laws and land use laws are, they're, they're being built up currently, but they aren't as strict as the way that they are, say, with the, the, what is currently referred to as the state of Arizona. Um, so you have construction companies who are building houses for like Navajo Nation citizens and stuff, and they're not building them, meeting the regulations that they would in the state. So they're not being as they're not being built the way that they should be. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why I got involved with urban planning because I feel like we need to be more we need to be more strict in regards to um, con construction companies and development in regards to. The building that is going on within indigenous communities but we also need to include um how that's going to how that's culturally impacting us you know because the way that it impacts us culturally it that goes hand in hand with the way that it's impacting the environment and how it's mm -hmm. impacting climate change mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> so but do you have anything else to add charlie I think, well, I do have one thing, and I think you've sort of like highlighted it with that comment. It's sort of like this rejection of a monolithic indigenous identity. Um, and I think that's very important to highlight because it's, it's very unfortunate that there are people who are native, who are in our communities, but also who a lot of like tribal nations who are very complicit in the sort of like contributions to climate change. Um, like there are sort of, I think I froze. Unless I'm still going. Yeah, you're frozen. Oh, there, there you go. go. <laughs> <laughs> I probably should have prefaced that my internet is unstable. Uh, <laughs> but, um, okay, where was I? <laughs> oh, you were talking about um, monolithic, how people, some people view indigenous peoples like one monolithic. Okay, so highlighting that you so something that you've highlighted was this rejection of a monolithic identity um, when it comes to indigenous peoples and i think that's very important because it's a really unfortunate reality that there are some people in our communities there's some tribal nations there's a lot of like tribal governments who 
do in a lot of ways support and contribute to the destruction of the environment, which means that they're contributing to climate change and to pretty much their own self-destruction. And I think a lot of that has to do as a result of settler colonialism in itself, because particularly with the elimination of an indigenous presence, there's also a sort of like elimination of ourselves, our culture, and our community. And I froze again. Okay, I can still hear you. We can still hear you. <laughs> Your audio is still working. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, this, it's this internet i swear you're uh, fine mine um but I, I would love to hear himana's view on this um because she is yeah. Latin, so i think I, I think a lot of issues that affect the native community affect latinx communities just as much mm -hmm. so what what are what are your opinions and views on this <laughs> um i think that we're kind of just like speaking of minorities in general like i mentioned before we're kind of the overlooked ones where they they plan things that they think are really cool and then they forget to think about the minorities and how it's going to trickle down and affect other people and as much as like anybody can get mad at the fact that environmental racism exists it really does mm -hmm. and like the projects that you guys have been mentioning yeah, they they're willing to relocate, reaccommodate white people, but they're not willing to do that for low income people because they just assume like like let's be realistic. We're not going to we're not going to file lawsuits. We don't have the money for it. We don't have the time for it. We usually aren't really taken seriously, so they're more willing to screw over brown people and native people than they are white people because white people are gonna fight, white people are known to have more money and they're more active in like the suing industry, I guess. <laughs> I think like, there's also just like a process of humanizing that's a lot of just like colonizers slash white people have that black and brown folks are not given. I mean, like if we think about the, if, like if we think about police brutality and how like, folks are framed when it comes to the media like you get photos of like white colonizers who are just like white like white people slash colonizers as like these like innocent oh they're misunderstood right type of thing and then you get these like really just like i don't know how you find these like ugly photos of folks but just like the color is different the scheme the aesthetic the entire thing like there's this message that like black and brown folks are not equal they're not humans they're not like they shouldn't be considered in these conversations of like policy um equity and human rights yeah like even going back to when they first came to the u.s uh, i don't know if you guys ever heard of the traveler's guide to california but it was basically this dude that like he was a colonizer he came to the u.s and like he moved to California and he was, well, before it was the US, of course, but like he moved to California and he wrote this book trying to get more people to move to California and saying how great of a place it was. And that was before California was even part of the 13 colonies. And he called um, indigenous people uneducated savages and he, he called a Mexican, no, I think he called indigenous people savages and Mexicans were uneducated or something along that line, like illiterate. And like, he basically just trashed us and people were reading that book. And that is the reason that they were deciding to come up here. And that's actually the Dahmer family. They were actually some of the people that read the book and they used that guide to get to California. And then all of the cannibalism stuff happened because that wasn't a real guide to California. He like made up some hypothetical trail that the Dahmers followed <laughs> and all of that trail. But like at the core of it, if you read, oh my gosh, I could not get past the second chapter because I just get, kept getting really mad that he just kept saying that we were dumb, that like, and it all had to do with skin color. Like all of their comments were like based around skin color and saying that you're savages, you don't know what you're talking about, you don't know what you're doing. And it's just, we have a different way of, that we settled on the land. Like we care about it, you guys clearly don't. Exactly. And building, building upon, um, we're kind of talking about environmental racism and environmental justice and stuff. I think a lot of uh, the reason why there's so many 
white climate change deniers is because they have the privilege of not having to deal with the repercussions of climate change. Um, and I think a lot of that transcends into like policy work and stuff, because there was actually um, a, a politician in Alabama. Um, I don't know his first name, but I know his last name is Beaker. And he, and I'm gonna quote him from his campaign website. He said that, I believe that no matter what you call it, a myth is still a myth and the so-called climate change crisis is about as real as unicorns and little green men from Mars. And, of, and he, he's an older white man, like most politicians are. And um, that statement, I, I think it, it, it does stem, um, well not stem from, but it, it, it's kind of, you can compare it to, or not compare, I cannot think of the word, but basically when you're discussing environmental racism, those are the type of things that you can discuss as well because he and other people like him have the privilege of not having to worry about what's going to happen to, I guess, where maybe he lives or his family and different things of that nature when the climate does really start to change unless it affects oxygen levels versus people of color, people of color and low income neighborhoods do because we're always the first ones affected by, by everything, you know? And the Navajo Nation is a really good example because of the uranium mining that was, that was done. Sorry, I was looking for this tweet that I was going to read out to you. Oh, it's okay. I'm just so fascinated by the links that people go to deny climate change. <laughs> because I'm just like, so I do this thing where I'm just like, I sh so because I like have a lot of trust issues, I'm also very super conscious of my environment. And so like, you just notice these patterns and something I've noticed is like, um, so winter is like colder. It's like, where was fall? So like, for example, it literally just like snowed today and like two weeks ago in Denver, Colorado, um, which is occupied Cheyenne, Arapaho and Ute homelands. And so I was just like, it's, this is like not normal y'all. It's October and it's snowing. Like spooky season was where? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was like in, uh, it was in the spring here, we got snow in um, Phoenix, which is occupied Akhmaatham and Peeposh lands. And it, a, a, lot, a lot of people didn't, they didn't think it was snowing because when it hit the ground, like it would melt. But the mountains, like South Mountain right behind downtown Phoenix was snow capped. And like, I live in North Phoenix and like everything outside of one of our loop freeways here was covered in snow. And it's the desert like and for me I was like oh, okay maybe because I I went to high school in Las Cruces New Mexico and we get snow there like every it's like every couple of years or so and it's a desert so I, I assume maybe Phoenix was like that but my friends who are born and raised here they're like no it, it that does not happen here and and that's when I was like okay how can people really deny climate change like this is like it's literally changing right in front of us like I do not understand how you can just deny it like that you know people are crazy they live in Oz like I found the tweet and it was somebody it was Dennis Michael Lynch, and I don't know, he's verified on Twitter. I think he's, he's probably a politician, I'm assuming, because he, he was replying to AOC's tweet about um, the Green New Deal, or something, something about, sorry, I didn't screenshot AOC's tweet, uh, something about the tornadoes that were happening. And he said, I spoke with Dorothy, she, with Dorothy. she says, Wizard of Oz knows a, ho a hoax when he sees it. He says climate change is a hoax. Tornadoes have been around long before Dems started making money from scaring peep into thinking we die in 12 years. She says you remind her of Scarecrow and then parentheses, no brain. She's got a point. Like, That's so people really, like, I just cannot. I cannot. I cannot. I think gymnastics here that's occurring. <laughs> and I think a lot of climate change deniers, they base it on like economic viewpoints, um, because I found another another quote by um, Beaker. He put uh, in, in actually it's not by him. It's a it was a letter having to do with Beaker and it's by Beisner. That's his last name. It says increasing atmospheric carbon dioxide is actually a great boom not only to humanity in parentheses by increasing crop yields, but also to all other life on Earth. And so they're looking at that as incre increasing crop yields, you know, because that is a good thing, but. Like, I, 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 they, they, it's, it's very recent that they, um, a lot of farmers, um, well, farmers are adopting what's called agroecology, um, but agroecology itself is a new concept and it's basically just like literally farming in the way that indigenous people have farmed for like millions of years. And that's basically what they're doing. 
Um, monoculture because monoculture is what degrades the land stop monoculture but yeah but th that goes back to the whole that you know colonizers they tend to exploit indigenous knowledge for that reason and i took a i took a class um it was called sustainable food and farms and we used a book that was on agroecology and a lot of the things that they were talking about and everything that that the ways to farm sustainably i could tell like i was like oh that is literally what like our people did, or I've read that other indigenous people have done, but nowhere in the book did it say that they were influenced by indigenous peoples, and you can tell that they were. And so again, settler closing is concerned with the elimination of indigenous presence. Well, we're still here, we're not going anywhere. Nope. <laughs> I think we should wrap it up. Probably. Yes. And thank you for you know, thank you for uh, hanging in there with us, Charlie, because we know we're like we're a hot mess. <laughs> All right, well, that wraps up our conversation about worldviews, colonialism, and climate change. And I just want to say thank you so much to Charlie for joining us today and, you know, um, engaging this conversation with us because it's, it's a very complex issue to talk about. And I think colonization of not only the Americas, um, North, Central, and South, but New Zealand, Australia, and other places in the world um, are constantly overlooked in regards to how that has influenced climate change and the great acceleration and so many different things. And I just want to say thank you so much to my really, really good friend, friend Bella, for uh, um, us being allowed to use her amazing music in this podcast. Um, and we have made the decision in conjunction with her that she is going to be the official soundtrack for our podcast, all of our future podcasts. Um, and then we, me and Himana both want to thank you all so much for joining us today. Um, we hope that you were able to learn from us um, and really resonate, really have this conversation resonate with you because I think it's really, really important, which I'm sure Himana can agree. Yes, I think it's definitely important to highlight the indigenous views because most of the script, uh, scriptures, no, that's not the word I meant, but most of the writings and the historical context that we have of indigenous peoples is through the white male's point of view. And so I think it's really important to have people whose culture we are talking about talking about their culture <laughs> rather than the third person point of view. Exactly. But thank you so much for listening. Um, we hope that you join us in our future conversations. Um, please be sure to follow us on Spotify, um, iTunes, and uh, subscribe to Sign Saves the World on YouTube. And yeah, we just, I, we really appreciate your support and thank you so much for listening. We hope that we taught you something. <laughs> thank you. Well, we'll see you next time on our next journey. Yes, and go hug some trees if you find them outside. <laughs> yeah,